You know, when we consider the epistles of the Apostle Paul, what are some of the first things that come to your mind when you think we're going we're gonna to read Paul today? For, what's that? Romans. Romans, yeah. Get some really deep doctrine, justification of faith. Think light reading. Open Paul and you think this is going to be a nice, you know, just in a casual uh, afternoon of reading Romans and 2 Corinthians. You know, typically one of the first things you think of when your mind goes to Paul is how doctrinally rich and how deep these letters are. Throughout his ministry, he penned who knows how many letters. We know there are at least four letters to the Corinthians, two which we have in the Scripture and two which were, were lost to, to time, and many to different individuals. But, but 13 of those letters were given and preserved by the Holy Spirit. Thirteen of those letters now make up a solid chunk of the New Testament Scripture. But, but the theology of these letters is astounding. And when you pick up Romans or Ephesians or Colossians, you, you find this profoundly articulate presentation about Jesus Christ and the cross that He died on for our sin. Whether Paul is discussing justification or he's discussing the mystery of, of, of the church or the supremacy of Christ, all of Paul's letters richly detail the theology of the cross. Except for one. Philemon. Now, the richness is still there, right? The grace of God and the gospel is underlying this entire book. The, the cross and the message of the cross is profound nature uh, and the nature of God's grace or the foundation for the message of Philemon. But, but this is the only one of Paul's 13 letters that does not delve into deep theological issues, deep theological concepts. It's just a simple letter from one man to another asking for a big favor. However, I'd like to propose to you that Philemon is a masterpiece about human relationships that shows the profound impact that the cross of our Lord Jesus has on our lives, even though it never mentions the crucifixion of Jesus or the cross. The implications of this doctrine are lived out in this beautiful book. This short letter demonstrates how God's grace, it transforms you, it transforms me, and in a nutshell, it shows us the effectiveness of the message of the cross by displaying how completely Christ has changed the way that you and I respond to one another. It shows us how completely God has changed the way that you respond to someone that you just don't get along with, how completely God has changed those that you're uncomfortable being around because maybe they're just a little bit different, a little bit awkward, a little bit something else. And Paul lives that transformation out in the way that he writes to Philemon. Well, last Sunday, we considered the opening seven verses, and we were introduced to the story behind this, this short letter. As a, just a quick review, Paul, Paul is under arrest for serving Christ. He's probably in Rome, possibly in, in Ephesus, uh, some theorize. Uh, it's probably shortly after the events of the book of Acts. And, and while he's waiting for his appeal to come to Caesar, he encounters a slave that's on the run. 
It's possible that that slave came intentionally to Paul in order to appeal to him and ask him for his help regarding an issue or something that came up with his master. Paul doesn't give us any details, but the recipient and the person that this is about, and Paul understood exactly what was going on. But for us, we're a little bit in the dark. But what we do know is that this slave was named Onesimus. He, um, he most likely either wronged his master and, and ran away to the big city to find a new life. There's a lot of people that have theorized and hypothesized that it, it sounds like maybe he stole something from, from Philemon. And uh, maybe he went to Rome to kind of blend into the big city and, and to get away. And, and there, by chance, by God's providence, he, he ran into Paul while Paul was under house arrest. Um, it's possible that he had done something that cost his master financially. He was maybe in charge of something or, or just wasn't a very good servant. And he misappropriated some things that financially cost Philemon a great deal. And so he seeks Paul out for help. We're not really sure, but there's different possibilities. Either way, Onesimus is in a bad situation. And under Roman law, Onesimus could lose his life if Philemon was so inclined because he was a slave. But through this encounter, Paul has the opportunity, an amazing opportunity, like it always is when we share the, God, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. Paul has this opportunity to tell Onesimus about Jesus. The slave receives God's grace. He becomes a follower of Christ. And, and just as it happened for you, just as it happened for me, Onesimus' life was transformed. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes a new creature. He spends a certain amount of time with Paul where he was imprisoned and he serves, uh, he serves Paul in a way that in some way that just, it profoundly impacts Paul's life. Now, if you're in prison or if you're under house arrest, you're going to be very dependent on, on other people. You, you, have, you can't go grocery shopping and the Roman government's not going to bring groceries to you. Uh, sewage isn't something they're going to take care of. You have to have somebody else come and take care of all those things for you. And so it, it could have just been these simple things of getting food and keeping things clean and, and getting stuff out of the house that you don't want in there. Whatever it was, the love of Jesus is lived out with such practicality by Onesimus that, that Paul comes to rely on him and, and love this individual as a brother, as a son. But, but both Paul and Onesimus understand something. They understand that in the culture that Onesimus and, and Paul and Philemon live in, and the societal standards that they had, Onesimus had an obligation to return to Philemon and to make things right. And so Paul writes this letter, third shortest book of the Bible. He writes this letter on his behalf, and he, he probably also at the same time wrote the books of Colossians and Ephesians, and he sent these letters all in the hand of Epaphras, around that same time, we think. And, and he sends this letter of, to Philemon to intercede on Onesimus' behalf. As we mentioned last week, Paul's going to make a, a big ask of Philemon, which is what we're going to look at today. But what you need to see through, through this big ask is the way that God demonstrates that our lives and our relationships are altered entirely. First, notice with me verses 8 through 9, how the love of Christ transforms obligations into partnerships. 
Paul likes the word fellowship. He's mentioned it a couple times. Verse 6 is a complicated verse that we looked at last week, but the idea is that there's this partnership, this fellowship that we have, and, and, and Philemon lives that out, and, and that same partnership is something that he had with, with Onesimus after he came to know Christ. Paul begins the main part of his appeal with these words. He says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you, there's a few different ways that we can read those verses, isn't there? You read that, and I've looked at that before, and it seems to me, or has seemed to me, that you know, it, it, it kind of sounds like Paul's saying, I could command this to you, but I'm not going to, but I'm really implying I'm commanding you, right? Does anybody else kind of, you're like, what's Paul doing here? And I had to really think through this. And, and, you know, if we were to treat the text flippantly and were to presume that Paul and Philemon's relationship was just like any other relationship, then um, we might read those words and presume that Paul is writing with a sense of false humility. That's not, what's, that's not what's happening, right? I had a boss at one of the restaurants that I used to work at that uh, he controlled and, and ran the restaurant and all the staff uh, with fear. Uh, it, it was one of the most successful restaurants in Dallas, but, but everything was run by striking fear into the employees' lives. And, and every day that I went to work, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to slip up if I was going to forget an ingredient of some dish and the chef was going to ask me and, and that was going to be my last day because I, I missed something. And there were times when the boss would say something like, I'm not going to command you how to do your job. But we all knew. We all knew what the expectations were and if we didn't toe the line, we most certainly wouldn't be feeling the love. One time I put the wrong steak in the computer. Guy got a ribeye instead of a porterhouse. The next shift I came to work, I ran food the entire shift for $2.13 an hour. It cost me. He took out of my paycheck. That's just the way things run. That kind of false camaraderie, the kind of false humility would be easy to read into this text, wouldn't it? If we thought that Paul was just like anybody else. And Philemon was just somebody else. But instead, I want to encourage us, let's approach what Paul says here and presume that this relationship that he expressed in verses 1 through 7 that we looked at last week is genuine. When, when he calls Philemon a beloved fellow worker, understand that Paul truly sees Philemon as a dear friend and as a partner in ministry. He's genuine about that. When he speaks of thanking God for Philemon, and when he speaks of Philemon, Philemon's love and faithfulness towards Christ and toward other Christians, Paul, Paul is not trying to, to butter him up. He is genuinely sharing his heart and his opinion of the kind of fellowship that he had, that Philemon had, with other people and with Christ. And that those people shared with this leader in the Colossian church. And so picture, if you will, a general. General of an army. He's a man of great power, a, a person with incredible authority. When he, when he gives a command, uh, there, there are no questions asked. A good soldier complies without asking questions. 
But, but picture this general and his sergeant. It's a sergeant that works in his office, is his personal secretary. The sergeant is under his authority, but over the years they develop this relationship, this partnership in their work. The sergeant has become a, a trusted workmate, an invaluable member of the team, and this two-man team deals with things, and the mechanics of their work relationship is so flawless, and, and they, they have worked together for so long that they even have become friends, a general and his sergeant, his comrades, teammates. A day comes along when the general needs to ask the sergeant for an enormous favor. It's a big ask that requires sacrifice on the part of the sergeant. Furthermore, the favor is personal. It's not a required task or part of the job, technically speaking. And so the general comes to his friend and he says, Look, I, I have something that I need to ask of you. You're the only person that can do this, and it's a big favor, and I know it's going to be hard for you. But, but let's just be honest. I, I know that I'm your commanding officer, and I, and I know that I have the right to demand this of you, but, but I, I want you to know that that is not what I'm doing. I'm asking because you are the only one who can complete this task, because it's truly important, and because I already know your character. And so I, I want you to know that I'm not commanding you, but I'm making an appeal to you as your mentor and as someone in need that you would do this thing. Do you hear the difference in what's communicated? It's a little bit more, oh, there's a genuine relationship there. And, and what he's doing is he's being honest and he's just laying things on the table. And you see, I, I believe Paul is not being false, but he's, he's just putting everything on the table and then he's appealing to his friend. But I also want you to notice that, that this, is, this is what the gospel does to relationships. In Christ, we have a master who could demand absolute compliance and great sacrifice. But first, he put on his sandals, and Scripture teaches us he came to seek and to save the lost. Our master came not to be served, but to serve. He's worthy of our service. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all glory, honor, and power. But he came and he submitted himself even to the point of death. And Jesus sacrificed himself for those who owe him everything. And you see, because of the cross, the relationships that you and I have with one another and the relationships you have with other people, people that you like, people that you don't like, people that you get along with, people that are hard to get along with, they're transformed. Our leaders lead by serving. That's not what we see in the world, is it? It's not the model that the world teaches. But Christ teaches servant leadership. And though there, there are people with authority, true, true authority in, in the church, our leaders aren't dictators. They're shepherds. They're servants who would die for the sheep. In marriage, the Bible teaches us you have two equals who come together and, and they do life as a partnership. And, through, and, and though there are different roles in that relationship, the one who has been called to lead that relationship has been called to lead by loving his wife as Christ loved the church. The leader is ready to lay down his life for his bride and so he leads 
by living sacrificially daily. Paul was an apostle. He, he and Philemon knew that he could have just obligated Philemon's obedience, right? They both knew it. And so when he comes with this request, by talking about maybe the, the thing that they don't want to talk about, he just puts it on the table and says, I, I know where things are at, I know who I am, and I want you to know I, I, I'm asking you as a friend. I'm asking you and I'm, I'm appealing to you. Paul calls himself an, an elder, an old man. Uh, in, in our culture, that's maybe a little disrespectful of a term. He calls him an old man. Uh, that's not the term Paul uses. Uh, he uses the term presbyterios, uh, which is the word we get elder from. It's a term of respect. It's a term of, of somebody who's older that, uh, that I look up to. And Paul appeals to him as, as an elder, as an older man, as a prisoner of Christ. And so he brings himself down a notch. He doesn't mention his idea, this idea that he's an apostle because he's truly appealing to Philemon. And, and I want us to see that, that our relationship with Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, his grace changes our relationships and it takes obligations and it transforms that into partnerships into true fellowship but also take notice from verses 10 through 12 how the gospel of christ transforms the faceless into family by that what i mean is this all of us are surrounded by people before the cross they were just co-workers classmates Another person driving down the road, the highway, who remains faceless and insignificant in your life. But once again, the God of the universe, who, who could have cast us aside, right? Were we worthy of his attention? David said, who, who, who is man that you are mindful of him? Hebrews echoes that. God could have just cast human race aside as insignificant and worthless rebels, but he declares value instead. He says, I love my creation. And his son died on the cross for that creation so that we might become co-heirs with Jesus Christ. You, you realize the impact, the significance of that statement? We are co-heirs with the Son of God. What is man that God is mindful of us? It's baffling. And yet he's loved us so much. He adopts us into his family. The gospel of Christ transforms the faceless and turns it into family. In verses 10 through 12, Paul writes this about a common slave. Listen to what he says about a, a slave. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Uh, these are extraordinary words. Uh, you know, this is a very personal letter. You know, we're used to reading Paul and we're looking for justification and theology and, and you know, sentence structure, right guys? That are in our Simeon Trust workshop. You know, we're looking for all this structure of things, but this is just a very personal letter from Paul to Philemon about this, this Onesimus, this slave that's become so dear to him. Extraordinary words. Because in Rome, a, a slave was nothing. I, I told you last week of a, a story of, 
a, a slave that ran away, and in order to teach a, a lesson, the, the master killed all 400 of his slaves just so that the others wouldn't rebel and, and they would get the point. And he had the right to do that in that culture. It's sick, but a slave was nothing. It was different from the slavery that we know in the United States, where slavery was primarily based on the color of one's skin. It was almost always equal to absolute poverty. Uh, in, in Roman culture, uh, physicians could be slaves as much as a field worker. But, but no matter what your skill level was or, or how much money you had as a slave, because you could own your own personal property or you could even own another slave, um, no matter what your skill level was or anything else that added to your value, a slave was still property. And, and your life could, could legally be snuffed out by your master if he was so inclined. Certainly a slave in Roman culture was not someone that you would invest your emotions and your life into or that you would even notice in Roman culture. But the cross alters that. The cross alters human relationships. One of the most life-altering and most re relationship-altering statements ever made uh, is found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 where Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, now he wasn't saying that there are, are not any differences between men and women. Uh, he, he was not saying that you lose your ethnicity and your culture when you become a Christian. Uh, he was not saying that people no longer had their specific roles in society. However, in Christ Jesus, we are all members of the church and we are all equal co-heirs in eternity for those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And that transforms the way that we talk to one another, the way that we see one another, the way that we treat one another. It transforms your relationships in church, in family, with your neighbor. It transforms the way that you see people who aren't believers in Jesus Christ. The faceless become family. For Onesimus, uh, he, he went from being a common slave that most people passed by without a second glance, and he became a son to the Apostle Paul. A special relationship formed when Paul led him to Christ. And what Paul does here in verse 11 next, this is actually the first time that he mentions Onesimus' name in, in this letter. Uh, Paul makes a pun, a joke. And so he, he graciously, lightly brings up the subject of this runaway slave. Um, you see, the, the name Onesimus, it, it means useful. You might even have a note at the bottom of your page that says that. It means useful. Uh, it, was a, it was a common name in Roman culture. There were a lot of people, slaves and otherwise, that were named Onesimus. Um, it wasn't the most popular name, but, but it, was, it was common. And it was, it was very common among slaves, especially when masters gave them a new name, uh, for obvious reasons. You, you want somebody who's useful, so you give them a name that means useful. But Onesimus, had he lived up to that name? Not at all. Um, Onesimus had lived up to that name as a servant in Philemon's household. 
You and I, we've all worked with people like that, right? You've been employed, you worked for a boss, and you worked side by side with somebody that was maybe a little lazy, right? You're probably picturing somebody right now. Don't mention their name. We all know individuals who might be classified as useless employees. They are there to collect a check, but little is returned from their end. This was Onesimus. And more than this, it seems that he stole something from Philemon or he did something that hurt Philemon financially. And Paul says, rightfully, he he was useless to you. And so it's a play on his name. He means useful, but he's useless or was. You see, verse 11 is the first time that Paul mentions Onesimus' name. And he, he almost halfway through this letter, he's almost halfway through this letter, and he finally introduces the subject of his big ask. But he introduces him with a, a bit of unexpected humor, a pun. He, he brings up the subject with what Kent Hughes calls uh, gracious lightness. His name means useful, but Paul says formerly he was useless. And Philemon knew this. Onesimus knew this. But not only does the gospel of Christ transform the faceless in the family, see how the gospel of Christ transforms the, the life of a slave who was nothing but a burden to his master. After he came to Christ, God, God changed Onesimus' life. Uh, again, like it happens for all of us when we come to faith, when you came to know Jesus Christ, there was a transformation that happened. You became a new creature in Christ. And, and the change in his life, in, in Onesimus' life, was evidenced in the way that he served Paul in his imprisonment. Just the way that he came alongside him and he, he took care of Paul where Paul was helpless. He was dependent on someone else. And apparently Onesimus did it in a way that profoundly impacted Paul's life. We live in a culture where jail means that you're locked up. They provide you with a place to sleep, food to eat, water to drink, but not in Roman times. Realizing that Onesimus needed to go back, though, Paul understood that Onesimus needed to go back and he needed to seek forgiveness from Philemon. And so he sends him back, uh, but he did so as if he was sending his own heart. Paul again uses the same word that we looked at last week in verse 7. Some of you guys liked that. Um, The the word for heart, it's not the word we think of as heart. Uh, It means the same thing as we do, but in that culture, you know, the heart was just something that pumped blood. In in that culture, um, if you really felt something about somebody, where do you feel it? Feel it in the gut. Yeah, so literally the translation is, is... is that I, I sent my own intestines, uh, the bowels. Um, the word for heart is, in their culture, was the bowels, the intestines. In their culture, the gut is it's where you feel human emotions. It's where we get the butterflies, right? And, and so just like we see the heart that way, uh, that's how the Romans saw it, uh, the intestines. And this slave had, had one... Uh, had won uh, Paul's heart as a friend, as a son, as an, as an individual that Paul truly needed. And, and friends, this is the transforming work of the gospel of Christ. And in a letter where the gospel is mentioned, but he doesn't talk about the cross, he doesn't talk about heavy theology, the implications of that theology are everywhere in this book. And, 
And Paul may not have mentioned those things, but make no mistake that the transforming power of the cross, of the cross of Jesus, is evident in the lives of these men. The transforming work of the gospel is evident in the entire presentation of this short letter, just as it needs to be in your life and mine. Finally, I want you to take notice of verses 13 to 16. How the gospel of Christ transforms our self-preservation and turns it into service. Before our relationship with Christ, uh, life was about serving ourselves. It's, this is not, I'm not saying that without Christ, a person's incapable of kind acts, that they're incapable of, of serving one another. But before Christ, even when I served people, it was about how people saw me. It, it was usually about me still, even when I was trying to be what I was supposed to be. And, and so people can be kind and people can be servants, but um, life as a whole without Christ is devoted to the love of oneself. But our perspective on life and about others changes when the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us. It did for Onesimus, it did for Paul, and it did for Philemon. Read verses 13 to 16 with me. He says, I I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more so, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, so here, here's the heart of Paul's request. Uh, up to this point, what's the letter been about? Paul writing a letter to Philemon about a slave that he's sending back. Up to this point, Paul's graciously, he's tactfully, he's wisely prepared Philemon for what he's about to appeal on behalf of Onesimus. But in verses 13 to 14, you can see that Paul, he lives out this principle of of service and sacrifice. Um, He's not just asking it of others, but he's going to live it out personally. Think about how Paul could have done this. Actually, think about what Paul's missing when Onesimus leaves. He's back to a jail cell or house arrest, probably chained to a guard or chained to a wall, and uh, he's not going anywhere. He's dependent on whatever scraps somebody happens to leave him, whatever generosity somebody has. Maybe somebody else comes along and helps and serves in a certain way, but Onesimus had impacted his life. And when he sends Onesimus home, he loses that. And so this is a sacri- a true sacrifice on Paul's part. He, needed, he knew, though, that Onesimus, and Onesimus knew that, they, that he needed to return, and he needed to make things right with Philemon. And that was more important to Paul than his own needs. Paul chose the needs of others instead of pursuing pursuing his own preservation. Paul's not the only person who was transformed by God's grace, though, was he? So was Philemon. And and here's where Paul's appeal for a a transformed perspective about Paul's relationship um, to Onesimus. 
You see, again, so far the letter has just been Paul sending a slave back to his master. Paul sends Onesimus back home, and, and he seems to return on his own accord. However, Paul encourages him to take back, not merely, take Onesimus back, not merely as a slave, but as a brother. Essentially, Paul shifts the discussion away from the relationships that we experience on this side of heaven, and he, he points to our relationship with one another and what it will be for eternity. He encourages Philemon to welcome his slave, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And you need to understand how revolutionary this is. This is revolutionary in the Roman Empire, this idea that, that Philemon would take Onesimus and that he wouldn't just bring him back into the household and assign him a new task, maybe punish him a little bit, but that he would bring him back as a brother, as a family member, as a brother in Christ. Most letters of this nature that Paul's writing, because there, there were other letters like this, where a slave is sent back and somebody writes a letter on their behalf, you know what the letter would usually sound like? Don't whip him too many times. You know, show a little bit of mercy when you punish him. Now again, when the New Testament church discussed slavery, we talked about this a little bit last week, and, and I know that as we look through this, so some of this might be a little uncomfortable for us, because we live in an age where slavery, not a good thing, right? Owning another human being, not Not good. And the Bible never condones it. Um, in the New Testament church, in the New, excuse me, when the New Testament church discussed slavery, it, it, it mentioned it as a reality of their culture. Just like a lot of the realities of our culture that we don't like and, and we seek to transform, but, but there are ways and we do that in ways we don't do that. It mentioned it as a reality of the culture that those people lived in. And when the book of Philemon was written, somewhere between 10 and 30% of the entire population were slaves. In fact, history shows us that the Greek and Roman world were, were built on slavery. It was woven into the very fabric of their entire culture. And so throughout the Bible, slavery is addressed as part of the culture and and the focus is on how do you as a Christian, how do you as a believer live in the midst of that culture and, and do so in a way that honors God. But rather than seek immediate abolition, uh, what the early church did is they, they sought justice. They sought what was right, particularly in each home, in each relationship. Paul encourages people to continue to live in their present state. And so to glorify God in whatever role that they, they found themselves. In other words, lives were changed one at a time, and eventually the gospel's transforming power brings further change to culture. And again, we also need to remember that, and keep in mind that slavery in the Roman Empire was quite different from slavery in the United States that we saw back in the 1800s, or that we're seeing today on the southern border with people who are being trafficked by modern-day slave traders. In, in the Roman Empire, slavery was not based on ethnicity or the color of your skin. There, there were many slaves who were quite wealthy and, and had professions in fields like medicine. And in fact, um, many slaves lived in better conditions than poor freedmen who struggled to find provisions 
whereas the slave had food and, and shelter and everything provided for him. And so, so there's an aspect of this that if, if Onesimus goes home and Philemon frees him right away, there are certain aspects where Onesimus is now going to suffer because he doesn't have the means of providing for himself. And, and so that's, there are a lot of different layers to what Paul and Philemon and Onesimus have to deal with here. So Paul had to consider whether it would actually hurt Onesimus if he were to be emancipated. All this to say, Christianity focuses on the transformation of the heart and on our future home and eternity where all men, both slave and free, are co-heirs of Christ. Christianity didn't condone human ownership of another person, but it did proclaim our freedom from sin that comes through Christ who died for us. And then as the Spirit transforms one life at a time. The church was led to live differently than the world that they were surrounded by. And oftentimes that impacts the culture that's around them. I want you to see the book of Philemon, it actually serves as an example of this kind of transformation. In a culture where slave owners had the right to execute their slave for running away, this very letter shows how Christ leads us to forgiveness it leads us to transform relationships and transformed living. And, and that's what he's appealing for Philemon to do. And it was so countercultural to what Philemon had ever grown up seeing or knowing and doing. Now, Paul's appeal has a certain level of ambigu ambiguity to it, doesn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to hear Paul say, hey, this, this guy needs his freedom. Give, give it to him. He's no longer a slave. Wouldn't that be nice if that was just right there in Philemon for us? That would fit our standards in the 21st century? Um, there's a little bit of an ambiguity to it. And I think part of that is for Onesimus' sake. Part of it is because Paul doesn't have any way or had a little way of reading what the next steps would be for Onesimus and, and what Philemon might provide to help him with that, that emancipation. Um, but there is a hint, isn't there? There's a hint that uh, the giving Onesimus his freedom, but, but he just doesn't say it outright like maybe I would like him to. And I think Paul was allowing for Philemon to respond to whatever point that he was ready for. At a minimum, uh, Paul was appealing for Philemon to forgive his runaway slave and, and receive him back as a brother in Christ, as equals even when they continued to serve in their former roles. And at a maximum, Paul is allowing for the possibility and hinting at it that Philemon would not only forgive Onesimus, but that he would also grant to him his freedom and then maybe send him back to Rome where he could help take care of Paul if, if Onesimus so chose. In that society, life may have been more difficult for Onesimus if he was on his own, but ultimately what Paul is doing is he's appealing for each person involved to die to themselves, to offer service, and sacrifice for one another, and he led the way in doing so. And that's exactly what God appeals for from us, isn't it? The person sitting next to you, your spouse. God calls you, both of you, to submit to one another, to die daily for the other, to sacrifice your own wants, your own needs for the other. He calls us to sacrifice for our neighbor's our brothers and sisters in Christ, our enemies. 
we're called to a life of service and sacrifice as we follow our Lord's example in which he gave his very self to us. Well, we don't know exactly what Philemon did, do we? Doesn't tell us. We don't have Acts part two. We're not told in the Bible. However, there are a few things that indicate that he took Onesimus back as a brother in Christ and that he may have also gone well beyond this to grant Onesimus his freedom. And uh, indeed, there is more to the story. First, I, I think we can confidently appeal uh, to the character of Philemon. Paul, Paul understood it, and, and he, he mentions it. And, and I think we can trust that, that the character that, of a changed life was there. Paul was a, a, excuse me, Philemon was an individual that had been changed by Christ. And so Paul, Paul, Paul does, and, and we're, we're going to continue to see uh, that Paul had this full confidence that Philemon would go even further than what he asked of Philemon. But secondly, the very fact that we have this letter, doesn't that say something? I mean, it's in our Bibles. What could Philemon have done instead? Free him? Brother in Christ? Toss it aside. Not going to let anybody else see that letter. Well, that didn't happen because we have it in our Bibles, don't we? He kept it. People read it. People still read it. He didn't tear it up after reading it. He didn't hide it away so that others wouldn't know its contents and couldn't hold him accountable. I, I would suggest that the very fact that this letter exists today and is in the Bible and has been celebrated for 2,000 years indicates that Philemon probably did go above and beyond and that others also read this letter. I think it's probable that Philemon forgave his former slave just as he had found forgiveness in Christ. Philemon certainly cared for Paul, and he would have sought out what was best for this prisoner for Christ that had helped plant the Colossian church. And Onesimus probably returned to Paul, where he was able to continue his ministry for a time, a few months, a few weeks. Maybe he even traveled with Paul those last couple of years. I also believe that Onesimus would have been discipled by Paul and would have continued to grow in his faith and, as he served during Paul's imprisonment over those next couple of years. But there's a final reason why I believe that Philemon honored Paul's appeal. You see, 50 years after this epistle was written, there was another collection of letters written by a pastor who was from um, the area of Syria. And he was being transported to Rome for his trial, and ultimately they were going to execute him, and they did. While he was being transported by land, by sea, he wrote some letters. This guy's name was Ignatius. You might have heard of him before. Uh, Ignatius was the, um, the bishop, the elder, the pastor of, uh, I think it was uh, Antioch in Syria. Is that right? Third church historian over here, right? Thank you. I'm so bad at church history, uh, so I'm going to lean on Jared. The year was A.D. 110. Uh, one of the letters that he wrote was his own epistle to the Ephesians. And in this first chapter, he addressed their pastor. You know what their pastor's name was? Onesimus. Now, this was once again a common name. But it's noteworthy that Ignatius uses the same pun, the same joke that Paul uses in verse 10 when speaking of their pastor. Maybe he just read Philemon recently, and so he uses it. But I think what's happening here is he's recognizing their pastor, 
He uses this pun and says how useful he is, how profitable he is to your church. And so church tradition hints that the former slave of Philemon, still a young man, maybe in his 20s at the time, that he later may have become the pastor of the church of Ephesus after Timothy. One theory today posits that it may have been Onesimus himself who was responsible for collecting Paul's letters and putting them in the hands of other believers and making copies that got spread throughout the Roman Empire. And a collection that we have today, which is how this very personal letter ended up as the final epistle of the 13. It's plausible. We don't know all the specifics. But even if Philemon merely just forgave his slave and sent him for a time to serve in Paul's time of need, it demonstrates to us the amazing power of the gospel and how the cross transforms not only our lives, but also the very relationships that we encounter with the people that are around us. The gospel takes what was once obligation and it transforms it into fellowship, partnership. A fellowship in which we share in the proclamation of the gospel that changed us. The gospel takes faceless people that we wouldn't notice or care for otherwise and we wouldn't care to spend time with. And it transforms them into family. A family that we will spend eternity with as we worship our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the gospel takes lives, and the gospel takes lives that are focused on self-preservation and it transforms us into servants of our great king and of his people. As we close today, my, my encouragement to you is to think of two people in your life. Two people in, in, in your life that the relationship might not be what it should be. Maybe it's a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. Maybe it's somebody that's sitting in this room and you just don't get along. Or being around each other is just kind of awkward for some reason. Maybe they just comb their hair the wrong way. I don't know. Maybe it's your sister, a cousin, a neighbor, somebody that you work with or go to school with. There's a couple people in your life where some things need to change. And the relationship needs to reflect the transformation that has happened because of what Jesus did for you. The same God who gave his son to die for you has led an example for us for how we are to die to ourselves daily for one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you. Again, I ask that your spirit would shed light on our lives and shed light on our relationships. Help us to see one small thing, maybe a big thing, maybe something we're struggling with, but a relationship that needs to change, that needs to reflect your magnificence because of who you are and how magnificent you are. And as those who follow your lead, as those who are transformed by the cross of Christ and the grace that it has brought to us because of the one who died on it, Father, I pray that you would change these things. That we would look more like Jesus. Not only the things we say, not only the things we do, but the way that we interact 
with one another. As we look forward to eternity with one another, might we see each other differently. Amen. Thank you.